And now, it is my pleasure to introduce our first presenter. Dr. Dowdy Abe is a Seattle-based professor who has taught and written about race, education, and hip-hop for over 20 years. He has appeared on national television such as MSNBC and The Tavish Smiley Show. He has taught students at every grade level from kindergarten through college. Another interesting fact about Dr. Ave is that today is his birthday. So please join us in giving an especially warm welcome to the stage, Dr. Dottie Ave. Uh, my pleasure to be here. I would say that uh, the genesis of me standing here right now was, was a nice uh, long Eastern Washington road trip that, uh, that Kristen and I participated in last fall where we had a, a, a good four or five days uh, over in the 509 to, to have some, some great bonding. And so it's my pleasure to be participating uh, in this program tonight. I think I, I want to, I'm not going to be up here long, but I would just like to use, touch on a topic that's kind of foundational. I think anyway to what's, what's happening uh, throughout the evening. Um, I wrote a dissertation about, uh, about a decade ago now, that was, uh, it was, I always have to write down the title because it's long. Uh, the Effects of Non-Traditional Instruction on the Classroom Discipline of African-American Students Grades 4 through 8, uh, because the discipline issue was something that had come to my attention. Uh, and so why not delve into it a little bit? And so I went into it figuring like, okay, I already know what, what I'm going to find. I'm going to find uh, that, uh, that, that, you know, you have to have, uh, the things that you need to have in place are a relevant curriculum that speaks to the lives of the children that you're working with, uh, and engaging instructional methods uh, that don't necessarily have people just sitting down and being given information that you just regurgitate. Um, and those two things were important, but those two things finished in second and third place far behind the number one overall factor in keeping children in classrooms. Does anybody want to take a guess at what that might have been? Personal relationships. Personal relationships. And it reminds me of a study that I cited in, 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 that, in that dissertation. Uh, it was called Pygmalion in the Classroom. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. But the basic premise went like this. This was done in the 60s. Basic premise was that uh, researchers went into a randomly picked school, uh, into a randomly picked classroom, and chose some randomly picked students, and told the teachers of these students that these students had taken, over the summer, had taken this, uh, uh, I love the name of the test. It's like the, the, the Harvard test of inflected acquisition, or something like that, and it was completely made up. And, that, uh, and so the researchers told the teachers that you could expect those students who had done well to be spurters uh, that school year. Um, and guess what happened with those students over the course of that school year? They spurted. But here was the thing. The thing was that as the researchers were observing, they noticed that the teachers were not necessarily spending more time with the spurters than they were with the other students. So what does that tell us? That tells us that it's not about the uh, quantity of time that teachers spend with students. It's about the quality of the interaction that makes the difference. Um, and that kind of speaks to, that's illustrated um, in, uh, in, in work that Geneva Gay uh, at the University of Washington has done. 
and she had kind of a similar uh, uh, discussion about uh, Native American students in Warm Springs, Oregon. And here's what she said. She said, many of the achievement problems of the students in this study derive from the interactional nature and procedural protocols of teaching rather than the substantive content of what was taught. How teachers talk to students interfered more with their academic engagement than the topics being discussed. Now, where things really start to go off the rails, I focused on grades four through eight because that's where the, uh, the achievement gap begins to reveal itself. Um, but where things really start to go off the rails are not just in terms of academic achievement, but when you're also talking about discipline. And the issue within Seattle is a very pronounced one, and it is a very lengthy one, full of historical context. Um, here in Seattle, uh, African-American middle school students are three times as likely to be suspended as other groups of students. Um, and it's not like the district doesn't know that this is happening, and it's not like we are not working to try to fix the problem, but knowing the problem is there and being able to counteract it, especially when it's taken a long time to build up, are two different things. Uh, but then here's the uh, other part here. Um, when I did this study, I was focusing on grades four through eight. Uh, it has since come to my attention uh, through further research that uh, not only are black middle school students being suspended at spelled at disproportionate rates, but now you have black preschoolers being suspended and expelled at disproportionate rates. And I have to tell you that I did a uh, parents' night uh, at a local elementary school not too long ago and had a parent tell me that her daughter was suspended from preschool for not taking a nap. And that is funny and tragic at the same time um, because before these kids even know what's happening, they are building up these files that follow you, literally follow you around like arrest records. And what does that then lead to? That then leads to disenfranchisement. Uh, doing a, a, another event for the school district, um, uh, I was approached by a principal after one of these things. And he talked to me about a student survey that he had conducted in his building. And the one of the, it wasn't a question, it was a, it was a statement uh, that said, uh, what did it say? It says something along the lines of, if I am not at school, there will be an adult who misses me. And in this particular principal's school, as they broke down and disaggregated the data by race, 80% of the black students in his school answered no. And so you start to see where the distance begins to uh, make, itself, make itself felt. Um, and this is where we get into something I'm calling academic self-esteem about how students view themselves as learners and whether they're smart and whether they are college material, that kind of thing. And there is definitely a through line in this dynamic as it exists now all the way up through college because we've done work researching once data came out at Seattle Central that black male students were the least retained group on that campus. We started doing research on that and it was kind of along the same lines of needing fellowship, needing support, uh, needing resources, not feeling isolated. Um, a lot of the things, characteristics that come up when younger kids are talking about their difficulties and connecting uh, with their school and environment. And this is all very interesting because <sighs> lots of times I hear the discussion about resilience. Like we need to teach these children resilience. What I'm saying is if you have been kind of, your academic self-esteem has been taking a beating since preschool, um, 
and you're still in school, to me, that's pretty resilient. You know what I'm saying? And if you're also thinking about the fact that uh, I believe within the field, the number is maybe a little bit close to a little bit under 50% of all teachers leave the field within five years, uh, perhaps the resilience needs to be directed towards the teachers who are giving up and washing their hands of the whole situation. That's just me, I don't know. Just a couple other things um, before I wrap up. I, I just want to say that it's important to remember that uh, just because you're a person of color does not automatically qualify you to be an excellent teacher for students of color. Uh, in my time, I have seen enough examples uh, to prove that, uh, no, that is not an automatic qualifier. So uh, that is one thing too important. But at the same time, it's also important for white teachers to understand that being white is not an automatic disqualifier uh, to be an effective teacher of students of color. Uh, I think back to my days teaching at Zion Preparatory Academy uh, in the 1990s in middle school, and there was a coworker, a colleague of mine. Uh, her name was, uh, at Zion Prep, we were all brother and sister. It wasn't Mr. and Mrs. So uh, I was Brother Dowdy, and who I'm talking about was Sister Teresa. Sister Teresa was born in West Glacier, Montana, and uh, went to college at Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas. Now, I have never been to either of those places, but it, based on her uh, recount of what it was like, there wasn't a whole bunch of people of color for her to interact with at either of those places. Yet she came straight into Zion, and she was tremendous with those students. And why was she tremendous? Because she was uh, genuinely invested. Uh, she was making sure the expectations uh, for all students were high, regardless if they met them or not, their expectations remained. Um, and she cultivated genuine personal relationships with her students. Um, and I don't think that I can underline um, that factor enough. Um, I, um, I, I, I teach a, uh, on Wednesday nights, actually next week is our last session, a version, I teach a hip hop class at Seattle Central, but this quarter I've been teaching a version of it to students at the State Penitentiary in Monroe. And we actually had a pretty lengthy discussion, off topic, uh, it's a hip hop class, but I was telling them what I was doing tonight and we had a pretty lengthy discussion um, about their thoughts and uh, if, I, if they had any messages that they wanted me to pass on to you all. And in fact, yes they do. Um, there were many, but uh, I think the overriding theme of what I was getting from them was that we have to be uh, okay with saying that college is not for everybody, because um, that's the truth. College is not for everybody. Um, however, we need to let the kids decide that instead of having that decision made for them by the time they're in what, middle school? because not only around GPA, but also about how these students are feeling about themselves and whether they think they belong in college or they think they're college material. Um, and as educators, these men were unified in their message. And this is the last thing I'll say, is as educators, it is our responsibility to leverage these relationships in ways that help put these young people in position to decide for themselves. Education So White 2018, let's go.
Annika Anand is tonight's moderator. She is the co-founder of The Evergrey. She was previously the engagement editor with the Seattle Times Education Lab, where she worked on Under Our Skin, an interactive project that featured people from across Washington State, examining how they define terms like white privilege, racism, and colorblindness. Right, so our first panelist, Chardonnay Beaver, is an 11th grader in Seattle, and she has helped establish two youth organizations committed to fighting racism. New Generation, which educates people about issues such as police brutality and implicit bias, and the NAACP Youth Coalition, which unites anti-racist groups across Seattle high schools into one powerful coalition. Our next panelist is Shukri Olo. Shukri Olo was previously a project coordinator with Seattle Public Schools, where she focused on reducing chronic absenteeism and discipline for African and African-American students. She currently serves on the Somali Health Board, the board for the Kent Youth and Family Services, and works with the King County. Our next panelist, Marco Silva, lives and teaches in McAllen, Texas, on the US-Mexico border. He actually came all the way from Texas tonight, so thank you so much for being here. And he is the founder of the South Texas Ideas Festival, which is a student-led conference that is inspiring young people of the Rio Grande Valley to see their bicultural identity as an asset to their leadership potential. He's one of 30 international TED-Ed Innovative Educators of 2017, and he is a Bezos Educator Scholar. Please welcome Marcos. Panelist Kristen Leong is a 2018 Citizen University Fellow and one of 30 international TED-Ed Innovative Educators of 2017. She is the founder of Roll Call Project, which is an international project humanizing the gaps in race, gender, and sexual orientation, separating students and teachers. Kristen is a former middle school teacher and three-term Washington State teacher leader. In addition, Ms. Leong was also my middle school teacher for humanities. <laughs> I also worked with her as a teacher assistant, and she has been an amazing mentor to me. So please welcome Ms. Leong. Our final panelist tonight is Colin Pierce. Colin is a teacher at Rainier Beach High School, where he's also the International Baccalaureate Diploma Program Coordinator. Colin is an education reform activist at the local and state policy level. He travels the country helping educators and other high poverty communities close the achievement gap by incorporating IB programs into their schools. Please welcome Colin. And finally, please join us in giving a warm town hall welcome to our entire panel.
Thank you, Eric and Christina. That was awesome. And thank you all for being here tonight. This is a really incredible group of people that we've assembled here, and we're excited to have you all as our audience. Um, so a, first, a few things before we start to dive in. Um, I'd like to acknowledge first that we are on native land, um, specifically the land of the Duwamish, the Puget Sound Salish, and the Lushootse tribes. Um, so let's just take a moment to respect the space that we're in right now. Thank you. Next, I want to say that with any conversations about identity, it's really important to be cognizant of representation. Um, that, in fact, is tonight uh, what our entire conversation is about. So I want to acknowledge that there are a lot of people who are affected by and who care deeply about this topic that we're going to be discussing tonight who are not represented on this panel. Um, that being said, we also don't believe that this discussion tonight stands on its own. Um, some of you may know that we also had an Education So White event last year. We hope to have many more of these in the future. And our goal is that each of those continue to build off of each other every single year and that we are able to bring in different perspectives and experiences to all of these conversations over time. Um, also, toward the end of tonight's event, we're going to be able to bring up the audience for questions and answers uh, from the panelists. And we're also going to say, um, invite you guys to share just thoughts and takeaways from what you hear here tonight. So even if you don't have a specific question for the panel, we're also just going to invite you to reflect and share anything that's on your mind. And so we're hoping that's another opportunity to bring in more experiences and viewpoints to everything we discuss up here tonight. So on that note, let's get to know each other's identities a little bit better. Um, so I'd like to know from each of our panelists, uh, what cultures or communities do you identify with? And did you ever have teachers who shared your backgrounds? Um, and so I'll, I'll start briefly. So I identify broadly as a straight female woman of color. Specifically, I'm East Indian. My parents were born in Kenya. My mom grew up in Canada, so I have dual citizenship. My siblings and I were raised in North Carolina, so I'm some odd combination of African, Indian, Canadian, Southern American. Um, I never had a teacher in my K-12 or college or graduate education who shared my specific background, although I did have one Indian male professor in grad school. So that's me. Do you want to start us off, Chardonnay? Hi, I'm Chardonnay Beaver. Um, I identify as a straight uh, black female. I'm also Christian, so that's my community. Um, I think that I can count on my hand how many teachers I've had who look like me. Um, for admin, that's different. And I'm also happy to be here tonight. <laughs> Good evening. Um, my name is Shukri Olo. Uh, first, I wanted to give a shout out to Seattle University because I'm an alum. I went here, both undergrad and graduate school. Go Red Hawks. Um, Red Hawk forever, that's my Wakanda forever. If you, if you haven't seen Black Panther, go. I've seen it like three times with my kids were obsessed. Um, so I think the issue of identity is a sort of a long, lifelong journey, and I've had different stages uh, of my life where I felt like I um, have arrived, and I certainly haven't, probably still on that journey. Um, but at the moment, I identify as a black Muslim woman. Uh, good, evening. good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Marco Silva. I come from Texas. I identify uh, as part of the 
uh, LGBT community, and I consider myself Mexican-American. I don't know, I come from conservative Texas, so I don't know what teacher might have been part of the LGBT community. Uh, definitely suspected some of them were. Uh, <laughs> but none, none that I know of. Uh, I'm Kristen. I identify as biracial. I am half Chinese and half white. Uh, I am also part of the LGBTQ community. And I was thinking about this question. I don't think I have ever had an Asian or mixed race teacher in my whole K through 12 or in college or in graduate school um, ever. And I did have um, gay and lesbian professors in college, but um, I didn't have any out teachers when I was uh, K through 12. Um, Colin Pierce, uh, I, by, by way of answering this question, I'm gonna tell uh, just a quick story, which is that I told my students today that I was doing this and they told me that I should start with a joke. Um, and, so, and so I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll try this one out on you. Like before, um, before uh, I joined the panel, the event was called Education Kinda White. Um, <laughs> they, they did not laugh, um, which is why I decided not to tell it tonight. Um, so, uh, but now so, you're getting laughs, so you've really just... <laughs> um, but no, I, so I identify as white, uh, male, cisgender, straight. Um, I grew up in Oakland, California, um, and, oh, there's some Oakland in the house. I love it. Okay, exciting. Um, oh, what? Oh, Rockridge, I love it too. Look at that. Um, I've already got a crowd here. So yeah, grew up in Oakland, California. That is a, a big part of my identity as well, but like since I've moved to Seattle, um, really like Rain the Rainier Beach community, the South End, um, my school is, is pretty deep in my, my sense of identity. Awesome. Yeah, and so I'll also remind all of our panelists up here tonight, I'll be asking everybody here questions, but would love for you guys, guys to jump in and make this feel like much more of a, a conversation and discussion. And I'm gonna actually start with Chardonnay because um, in, in my short time in, in education reporting, I learned how valuable it was to bring in student voices in everything that we do. And so I'm really, really excited that we have Chardonnay's perspective and voice here tonight. And so as a student of color, who's been able to connect with at least one teacher of color at your high school, as, as we talked about before this panel, can you share with us what feels different or significant about your relationship with that teacher of color versus other teachers who are white at your school? I think it's the advocacy portion that really um, impacts me and influences me. Um, somebody you can go to who isn't going to question you based off what you say, or you don't have to psychologically question, is he saying this or is she saying this because I'm black? Is he saying this, is she saying this because I'm a female, you know? Um, people of color, speaking from my own experience, that's always a thing, you know? Instances of that sort, and so, going to somebody who you can talk to and like, oh, you know, having those cultural interactions, like, did you see Black Panther? Me too, oh my gosh. You know, like that, <laughs> yes, it was amazing. Did you get that message? Yeah. Like things of that sort is really awesome. Um, for many students, I know I go to Garfield, that's like a safe haven. It's like a place that you can go to and, you know, chill and relax, but also um, admire and inspire to be similar to that person and get those components of education that you can receive differently. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And, and Colin, I'm curious, um, as a white teacher, how, what are you doing to try to address that, that kind of disconnect that Chardonnay is talking about? Or is it, is it possible? You know, what do you do to try to make your classroom feel like a more inclusive place for all of your students? Yeah. I, um... 
like I like. Here's a, a story as well, um, which is about how naive I am, and that that is uh, that like I you know having grown up in Oakland, having attended diverse schools when I was growing up, I was like, oh, I got this in the bag, right? Like, of course, like I'm I've, this is in this is in me. This is like, of course, how insulated and how thick my blinders were to the level of privilege um, that I that I uh, had experienced, and also I think the the false impression that a lot of white folks get that that like. Underneath any colored skin is just a good white person waiting to get out, right? Like, and um, and and the, in fact, there are very important differences that are there to be celebrated, right? And um, that that involve us not uh, not necessarily saying, you know, like I'm, I'm colorblind, etc., but more like, okay, well, what, like, what, and and who are you, and and how do you see yourself, and being receptive to that. Um, but a piece of advice that I got going into um, uh, teaching in a low-income school was um, just two things, out-love them and out-last them. Um, and, you know, you get this question a lot, um, the, like, do you care if your students like you? Um, I, you know, I've heard it on, on job interviews and that sort of thing, and, and honestly, it's like, I, I don't care. Um, what I care about is if I like them, right? Like, do I, like, do I love, do I care about them? Am I coming in wanting to, um, to give them something valuable every day? Um, and if, if I'm in that position, then the rest of it's going to kind of fall into place. Um, I mean, the other piece is, um, I think we as teachers, and this is, this is both a very Western and a very male-oriented uh, approach to things, but we value certainty, right? Like, we value answers, we value being right, and a lot of the structures that we have within education um, are centered around that, right? Like, do you have the answer? Did you give the right answer? All of that sort of thing. Rather than, like, a receptive place, a place of questioning, an inquisitive place. Um, and I think that particularly because, you know, you're probably more likely to become a teacher if you've had a really positive experience in your schooling. Um, so the people who end up in the teaching profession are often people who did have that very, like, answer-oriented, certainty-oriented, not necessarily receptive um, uh, orientation in their education. And, and so um, I think that it perpetuates itself. Um, and as such, like, how do, how do I, as an educator, model not just that receptivity, um, but also create a classroom space where that receptivity is valued, encouraged, um, where, where being wrong about something is not a problem. Um, in fact, it's something to be celebrated. And then the other piece is, like, vulnerability um, and, and being vulnerable. And, like, the students of mine who are in the audience will know that I, like, make an ass of myself on a regular basis in class. In fact, my colleagues probably know that too. Um, and and I'm, I'm saying right now it's totally intentional. It's all an instructional strategy. But, I, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think though that like, you know, there's so much that Dr. Abe talked about um, that I think is relevant here as well, um, particularly regarding um, taking a strengths-based as opposed to a deficit-based approach, um, uh, building in opportunities for students to feel successful before you ask them to do something hard right, so that they're not already struggling against those years and years of uh, sort of um, uh, internalized sense of inferiority uh, as well. So, um, yeah, that's all of that. Can I um, sort of respond to that? And I think I want to also respond to something that Dr. Abe mentioned about being a white educator doesn't necessarily disqualify you from being an effective teacher. Um, and growing up, so I came to this country at the age of 10 as a refugee from Kenya. I was born in Mogadishu, Somalia. Shout out to Somalis. Any? Um, it's not that many of us. I see you. Um, and um, sort of a very homogeneous refugee camp that we lived in and airdropped in the middle of nowhere in Houston, Texas in 96. 
in a very difficult um, environment, and we fled um, to Washington State. Um, I say fled because like it was extremely hard at that time, and it feels like a diff Marcos. Mar I know what you're talking he, about. He knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yes, Marcos. <laughs> <laughs> you live there, <laughs> um, and we came to Washington State and um, had. Uh, my first experience with this white educator in the sixth grade, uh, refugee kids who didn't speak any English, um, and Miss Kelly. Miss Kelly was this really kind white woman um, who knew that uh, our widowed mother didn't speak any English, worked two to three jobs, um, was basically surviving, taking care of three children on her own, and Miss Kelly um, would make sure that we had access to services um, because she knew that my mom couldn't help, um, she couldn't navigate those systems. And she would make us stay during recess, and at the time I hated her for that, but in hindsight, um, the time that we stayed in do doing our homework with her support um, meant a lot, and it showed that like she cared. And that's getting to the point about um, teachers don't necessarily have to always reflect the identity of that child as long as that teacher is loving on that child and that child knows that. And Dr. Abe mentioned about the research in, I don't know how long ago it was, but in the 60s or somewhere, that um, says a, an adult that has one positive interaction with a child can change that child's trajectory. And Miss Kelly in the sixth grade in Kent, Washington was that for me, a black child who's never had any um, experience with folks outside of my ethnic or racial background, and she was that for me. And there are plenty of teachers like Miss Kelly, like Colin, um, who are that for many other students as well. Are you still in touch with Miss Kelly? I am. Oh. Hopefully she's watching tonight. I wanted to, um, to touch on something that, that you said and also on something that Dr. Abe said, and that's around like loving and expectations um, and what that looks like. Because I, I think, you know, there was a lot of talk about expectations when I first came, you know, when I was going through my education as a teacher. Um, and, and I think that I thought, in fact, I know that I thought um, that, that high expectations was just sitting there privately having those thoughts in your head, right? And I was like, oh, that, that's not going to work. Like, that's not going to work at all. Um, and it took me a little while to recognize that, like, that loving wasn't about making excuses, that loving wasn't about sort of um, uh, recognizing s structures of oppression and giving students a pass because of those, right? Um, that it was actually about saying, you know what, in, in this space, failure is not an option. Like, you don't get to back down in the ways that you, the, the, the sort of like easy way out the back door, all of that that you may have been given before um, is not an option for you. And so we're gonna hold you here, and we're gonna make sure that we find a path to success one way or the other. And it took me, it took me a while to figure out how you start building that into the, the classroom and how it's less about necessarily the, the expectation, but it is, you, you develop that relationship that, so that you're able to say that. You're able to say that without, um, without threatening the student uh, as well. I totally agree. I think that teachers are to be nurturers. I, I spend majority of my day with my teacher and I come home to my family and that little bit of access of time, now that I'm in high school, people who are in high school can understand you have no time to yourself. <laughs> um, but no, you spend a lot of that time with your teacher and they're supposed to nourish you um, and get to know you. And I think that if those needs aren't being met, the student's gonna do other things to reach that point. 
um, and just not stepping back. Having a teacher um, who, I have a teacher who's white, Mr. Leslie, love him. He has done an incredible job incorporating my history into the units, every unit. And at times I've questioned, is this too much of my history? Because I'm so used and constructed to um, a westernized curriculum. And having that and him knowing when to step back and step forward and advocate is so essential to the, the classroom environment and what students are gonna put out and the energy that they bring to the classroom. And Marcos, you have a really unique experience here as well. Do you wanna talk yeah, about I that? I kinda wanna add to that. So being here is really, really special to me. So I grew up migrant. Uh, my parents came into this country in 1990s and um, they really came because they were needing a lot of field workers in the north part of Washington. And so I spent the beginning part of my schooling in schools here. Um, I really experienced what it was to be the only kid of color. And actually before I came um, back, I was going through pictures that my mom kept and, and report cards. And, and there was one report card in the back that said, uh, Marcos would benefit from reading in the summer. And you know, I was put in a position in where I had to be my own advocate at a young age, translating from Spanish to English for my parents. I, you can imagine I didn't read that summer because my mom really didn't get that note. I, I was in charge of telling her that I needed to read in the summer. Um, and, but, but now that I, that I teach, yeah. <laughs> um, now that I teach in a community where I was a raise and 92% of the people in my community look the same. I, I understand the teacher uh, relationship with students, but I also really value the teacher relationship with parents. Um, I think that that's really important. I, I have, I've had students, because we all look alike, it, the, the area that I live in, it's in the southmost tip of the state, and we have the border, right, right next to Mexico, that is the river, the Rio Grande uh, River, but then 60 miles north of us, we have the Border Patrol checkpoint. Um, and so we house a lot of first-generation Americans. And a lot of our stories are the same. You know, parents came into this country for a better opportunity. You know, the parents that bring their kids over here, they look at education as a privilege. Um, and so a lot of my, my job really is, yes, to connect to students, but also to educate parents about the expectations of being a parent in America um, and the expectations between the relationship that we're both gonna have. Um, and so I think that that's also really, really important. Yeah, I was struck, Marcos, you and I were talking before and you said that when you are in parent-teacher conferences with your students' parents, that it feels like you're just hanging out with your mom's, mom's friends and your aunties, right? And the, the conversation goes back and forth between Spanish and English. And I thought about how like empowering that is for those families to have you as a link to their child, right? I mean, <laughs> teachers were with kids sometimes. Chardonnay, you probably know like more sometimes than they even see their families. They're with their school teachers. And so like that that's the power of having teachers that not only look like the families, look like the students they serve, but look like their families as well. Yeah. Teaching is, is really like a, like I didn't understand how political teaching was. Uh, we have the power to really put in front of kids what we want. And, and I think that that's really important um, because I, I go back to what you were saying, like these culturally re relevant lessons are very impactful for kids of color. You know, the, yes, the majority of teachers in America are white, um, meaning a lot of kids of color will never see a teacher represented 
uh, themselves represented a teacher, but that also means that a lot of white kids will never see a teacher of color as the knowledge holder. And so it's really important to, to recognize that and, and build our education around that. I, I actually meant to, I, like I forgot to say that in the introduction because I didn't answer that part of the question. Is like, well, yeah, like of course I had a lot of teachers that looked like me. Um, but I, I also, like I have multiple memorable teachers of color that I had and, and I, I think that they were really my first, they were my first intimate interactions with someone from a different background than myself, right? Um, and, and that, it, it made a huge change. And I think that while um, we often forget that, that there is very important social justice work to be done in white and affluent schools, um, and that uh, not necessarily prioritizing that above or anywhere, you know, like in any hierarchy, but um, that part of that is making sure that they have that experience as well. Yes, we've talked about the, the impact um, of having uh, teachers of color, you know, in terms of the student relationships, parent relationships, also with other teachers, right? Feeling like um, if, if you are a teacher of color or um, from a community that's less represented at your school, it can be very lonely sometimes. So, I, Kristen, I wonder if you could talk about that experience a little bit. Yeah, so it's not just a, the race gap, right? Like, it's also the gender gap, that by far the majority of our teachers are women, and of course about half of our students are boys. Um, our visibility of our transgender students is on the rise. Um, and there's also sexual orientation. So um, we don't have data about how many LGBTQ students and teachers are out there, right? We're just starting to understand how valuable it is to collect that data. But in the meantime, we do see students um, more and more identifying as somewhere on a spectrum, right? Acknowledging that they're perhaps not 100% heterosexual or 100% homosexual, but somewhere in between. And meanwhile, it's still it's still unsafe in a lot of places for LGBTQ teachers to be out. And so, you know, you talk about that, that loneliness of students perhaps not seeing themselves in their teachers. There's also that loneliness for teachers who are teachers of color, perhaps the only one in their school, or LGBTQ teachers who are perhaps the only one in their school. Or maybe they're not the only one, but nobody can be out. So you don't even know, right? And so. Um, I think we're just starting to think, I think we're ready to have this conversation about the race gap, right? Like our, our title of our event, like people are ready for that hashtag and we're ready to be here tonight. I think we are just starting to be ready to think about how do we also create inclusive schools for our queer students. And then I think the next step is then thinking about how do we create inclusive schools for our queer teachers. And then of course thinking about then how do we also support our teachers and students who are both queer and of color um, I remember there was a story at once, um, there's a student, a high school student that I had had as a middle schooler, our school was um, 6 through 12, and he was having lots of um, challenges with his decision making, um, and teachers and counselors were kind of, you know, discussing this student and thinking about what could be done and discussing all the things that had been tried and weren't working and, um, you know, staff room conversations and I just piped in and I was like well is anybody like talking to him about the fact that he's gay and like none of his friends are gay and like he's not dating and all the rest of his friends are dating and it was like like the record <laughs> like like I just said what you're not supposed to say and then I was like oh like are we not acknowledging that like is that not a thing and then I realized like 
the burden that I think teachers of color that we talk about frequently about the fatigue of always having to advocate for inclusive curriculum, books that are not just about straight white boys, um, are, you know, that teachers of color are largely uh, tasked with connecting with and also disciplining our students of color. That it's also, if you're a teacher of color and also queer, then are you also now tasked with advocating for all of your LGBTQ students on top of that? And so when we talk about the burnout rate of teachers and that we look at that, that it's higher for our, our teachers of color, I would suspect it's also higher for our queer teachers as well. You know, So that's why it's so important that we need allies who are white and straight to be doing this work too. Can I um, comment on sort of the exodus of uh, black and brown teachers um, out of the education uh, workforce? Uh, one of the reasons is because of what you mentioned, Kristen, about um, being the only teacher of color in your school and being put on um, to staff the race and equity team. Is that... Sound familiar? You're like, are um, the team? What? Like, just you? Because you're yeah, the only like teacher of color? like one black person always, like, always, um, which is fine. And having to, like, be the voice of reason, like, what, what are those kids thinking? Or what, what is that community thinking? Or what is that parent thinking when um, that other educator could also just ask that student or, like, ask the parent, like, what are your needs? How can I support you? I'm not a historian, but I was reading up um, most recently, and um, I read that there in, in the South, uh, with segregation, uh, black children were being taught by black teachers. And with integration, all of those teachers were fired. And in the state of Washington, in Seattle, um, with integration, a lot of the black teachers were not hired, right? And so, we now are trying to bring back a workforce that has experienced decades of institutional and structural racism, that has experienced a lot of the trauma that we see our black and brown children going through right now, whether it's discipline, and I worked on a Race to the Top grant um, for Seattle Public Schools that um, was trying to reduce chronic absenteeism and discipline for African and African American students in the Southeast those teachers may not come back, right? Because the trauma that they experienced as children is too much, and the trauma of having to navigate the same system that brought them to that level of trauma is too much. And then you add in all these other components of, you know, OSPI wants this standardized testing, and now the school board is coming up with this new policy change. Oh, and by the way, you're losing teaching, you know, staff, and, you know, I have two kids in the Kent School District, and they lost 100 positions. That's a lot. And I wonder how many of those positions are positions that were held by staff of color. Um, and, and so how do you then bring back a workforce that we've neglected, that we told were unwanted, um, that we put through decades and decades of institutional racism? I don't know if a flyer that they saw from a college of education university as great as it is, is gonna do the, the job. Like that's not enough. I want us to be thinking about not necessarily our, the current sort of the workforce that we wanna get, which is great, but what's your role as an educator now? How are you creating that teacher who's gone through that trauma for decades? How are you, um, you know, managing your classroom in a way that you're able to check your bias, 
right? Like that discipline rates exist for a reason, and it's often because of implicit or explicit bias, right? We're treating d kids differently based on their race, period. How are you checking that one colleague who is white, who says whatever, and no one is able to say anything to that person, and their microaggressions, and consistently disrespecting parents, perhaps, and kids, perhaps? Um, there are things that you can do in the everyday as an educator, and I feel like we need more focus on that. Colin, I think, brought up earlier that the people who are likely to go into teaching are people that had positive experiences in school. And so, like, it is essential. If we want more teachers of color, we need to have our kids of color have more positive experiences in our schools. Yeah, and I'm curious what kinds of conversations are happening in the schools you guys are in now to get at what Shukri is talking about, right? If any, um, either the conversations that are happening or the conversations you wish were happening. Um. I'm gonna, again, conservative Texas. Um, I was actually approached by another teacher, really excited um, because he was starting the Gay-Straight Alliance. Um, and I was the only person, then the first person he told. Um, and it was, it was, he was expecting a reaction. He was expecting a congratulations, a, a man, you're changing the way. And then it was like, so what do I do now? Um, and it, it was a moment of, you know, in Texas, we're not ready for those conversations. Um, and, and it's sad, and, you know, I had one of my students who I've had, I had for about three years come up to me, and she was, she, you know, she stops me in the middle of, of the sidewalk and says, I want to ask you something, but I'm really scared, and I don't want to be disrespectful. Um, being gay, you, you know what that question is. Um, he's, and and it's, we spent about five minutes with her saying, you know, it's just we're all wondering, but we don't know how to say it. We just, we really like you, but, but we kind of want to know because we've always expected. And, and, you know, back home, it's still a respect thing. It's, it's still, you don't ask, um, you, don't, you don't share, and, and it's, you're not supposed to have those conversations with students yet. Um, so that's, you know, that's really important. The other thing I kind of want to mention, ACT uh, sent out a report a couple of years ago, and out of all the students they, that they were taking the ACT, obviously going into college, 75% uh, of the kids that uh, checked off that they're going into education or getting an education degree were white. Um, and so our future kind of still looks like what, it, what it's looking like today. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm going to go back. I think that culturally relevant lessons are, are really what we need to focus on right now. And just to follow up on what you're saying, Marcus, what, if anything, do you feel comfortable kind of spurring more of those conversations at your school? Like, what would it take for you to feel like you could really talk openly with people about your concerns and, you know, how they're feeling about representation? So I'm going to shout out the Bezos Foundation because they've, re they've really supported me in, in starting a project with one of my students in where we're tackling the conversation about culture, community, and identity. Um, again, 92% of my community looks the same, but we all, we all don't have the same idea of what it is to be ourselves down there. You know, we, again, we live in a pocket of America that a lot of people don't really understand, and, and the, the foundation has really helped us spark these conversations with kids. So what we do is we put community leaders in front of young adults not to talk about their jobs, but to talk about being a female CEO, 
that reports to a mail board. Um, and, and I think for me, what it's doing is it's getting our kids to, to really recognize the community that they're from and how they've been brought up. You know? Yeah, so like for the South Texas Ideas Festival, you guys are so deliberate about curating really diverse speaker lineups. You have speakers talking about LGBTQ issues. Yeah. You have teacher uh, speakers talking about what it means to be a leader as a woman. Like in Seattle, like we take that for granted. Like that's what that's what we do. We we seek out diversity, right? We're we're proud allies in in so many different public events. But like in South Texas, like are you seen as sort of like a troublemaker, like a a revolutionary? Like what is it like? Because you're, you are starting these conversations right, right in McAllen, on yeah. the border. So I do this outside of school. Um, <laughs> I should, should have said that. This, this event does not happen on campus. Um, but, but yeah, we're, we're trying to have those conversations. We're trying to put students in those positions at a younger age. Uh, because 100%, my job is to send 100% of my students off to college. 25% of those have to go to a tier one, tier two university which means they have to leave our community to attend college. And what that does is it puts a student who's never been outside of our community in, in, in a different environment, and I wanna make sure that they can navigate those conversations. I think that that's why opportunities for students, uh, especially students of color, are very important when it comes to college readiness. I'm in a program at Garfield called Why Scholars, and I don't know what I would do without those opportunities. Um, I love the Bay Area, by the way. <laughs> um, we actually just went to Oakland and um, went to a black college fair, and just that environment was so empowering because we don't have that here in Seattle. Um, but I wanted to make a point because uh, you had talked about environments and how, um, how questionable or challenging that could be when leaving those environments and never being placed out or never having somebody who've been, who's been from outside environments into the environment to teach those things, like you are. Um, new Generation, my activist group, we talk about things like gentrification. And currently in Seattle, that is a huge, um, huge topic, very controversial. And um, because a lot of students of color who attend Garfield or inner city schools are being pushed out, their grandparents are being pushed out um, it's affecting them. In ACES, um, which is like traumatic situations that children experience, they're not acknowledging that place, displacement is one of those things. And so having teachers who look like you in those communities who are also being pushed out is something that's not being acknowledged. And having people talk about what's it like to go to school here but not have those advantages to stay after school late what can we do to meet you where you are? Like having a teacher who will sit you down at lunch um, and work with you. And so that's very important and essential in this community and just abroad to see that representation. Yeah, and so I'll say that I know there's so much more we can, we can dig into here and I wanna make sure we leave time for, for audience questions. The one question I wanna ask all of you um, right, we, we've had this conversation Education So White last year. We'll continue to be talking about this. This conversation is, is ongoing within pockets of our community. And so I know sometimes it can feel like, God, like, are we still talking about this? Like, what are we doing about it, right? So I would love to hear from each of you, um, what is a, a success story or a solution that you have seen or been involved with 
um, to however you define this particular problem. Um, so Colin, we can start with you and go down the line. Um, I, I mean, I, I personally, I'm, I'm biased about this, but I, I think my school is, uh, and, and my students are, are a success story. Um, and, and I don't know that it always feels that way every single day. Um, but for those of you who don't know the context of our school, uh, Rainier Beach High School um, is about 97% students of color. It's the very south end of uh, Seattle. Um, as families and communities are being pushed out of uh, the central area um, and other parts of the city, um, that is, it is becoming and has become uh, essentially one of the, the great concentrations of uh, communities of color in Seattle as well as low-income communities. Um, about seven years ago, the school was in a building built for 1,200 students. It was down to 320 students. Um, and, uh, and it was on the verge of being shut down. Um, and part of what we, what we did, and I, I, was, um, I was talking about this just earlier, part of what we did, and this was uh, sparked by parents who said, you know, we want something that's really powerful for our students. We know that programs like AP and like IB, um, which is the program we have at our school, are often used as ways of segregating schools. Um, they're brought in essentially in order to create a de facto segregation within the school because you can't legally do it between schools, right? And, um, and what they said was, this is not what we want for our kids. This needs to be a program for the 320 students who are here right now. Um, and it needs to be something that continues to serve them. This isn't a magnet. Um, this is to, build, to bring the community back into the school, not to bring other communities into the school. And over the last seven years, we've built an all-inclusive program so that there is not a single general education student who comes through um, our doors, who now, actually, as of this year, um, doesn't take at least two IB classes um, with, uh, I mean, currently a third of our juniors are doing the full IB diploma. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of the early signs of success with this um, was a student named CJ. Um, and CJ uh, was, and I don't think he would mind you tell, me telling you this because um, he told it to a radio producer who, who did a documentary on our school, um, and so it ended up being broadcast. Um, but he, um, he got in trouble with the law his freshman year. He was a football player. I taught him his freshman year. He's, he struggled, um, and he struggled in English in particular, and he failed pretty much every year going through his English class. Um, but we still put him in IB English um, his junior year. He struggled his junior year. Um, and, and at a certain point, I think, the challenge, the engagement of the, of the curriculum, and also the fact that he had a teacher of color, um, who, a te you know, a black teacher like him, who really in engaged with him, who connected with him, um, he started to see himself differently. Like he started to see his work differently. He started to see his abilities differently. Um, and so he, um, he graduated, He's, he told this story. He said, he said how he felt like, you know, IB really turned him around and it was a great experience for him. Um, and he came back the, the next year and, um, and I asked him what I always ask my students, which is like, what did, is what we did, did it prepare you for life after high school? Because if not, we're not doing our job. Um, and he said, Mr. Pierce, let me tell you a story. I went to, um, I, like I was recruited for football um, for Mendocino State, largely white school, right? And he went down to Mendocino State and he said, me and the other football players were the only kids, um, black kids on campus. And they put us all in a remedial English course. They didn't even test us, they just put us all in a remedial English course. And so the teacher asked us to write a paragraph for the first assessment. And I said, like, that's middle school stuff. So I wrote her an essay. And they pulled him out of that class and put him in an advanced level English class. And you know, he didn't 
score particularly well on his exams, and you know, it's not like, he, he, still, he still had struggles, but this was some, you know, something that Dr. Abe talked about, which is this academic self-esteem. He, like, he knew that he had done something that was as hard as any of these kids at the school had done, and he was capable of it, and so he was confident enough to walk into his counselor's office and say, you have me misplaced. And he had to argue that he had taken an IB class. Like, he had to convince them that he had done it. But he did, and he stuck through. He's still in college, um, uh, not at Mendocino State anymore. But it's, that's, for me, like, if we're doing anything, it's, it's uh, equipping our students with that sense of confidence. I love that story. I love the, the, the personal story. So my project, Roll Call, is all about stories like that. So I've spent the last year and a half with the support of TED-Ed working on my project, RollCallProject.com. And I have been interviewing and photographing students and teachers from all over the world um, about and asking them two questions. One is, what do you have in common with your students or teachers? And two, does it matter that students and teachers have things in common? Uh, when I first pitched this project to TED-Ed, I was like, they're like, what does a successful project look like? And I was like, this project is going to contribute to finding out ways to close the gaps in race, gender, and sexual orientation between students and teachers. I was going to have like measurable outcomes, and this project was going to fix some of these problems. Um, super type A. You fixed it all, right? Yeah. It's all done. <laughs> yeah. I was like... Yeah, this is it, this is it. Um, quickly, as I started actually photographing, I started, of course, with my colleagues, photographing um, actual students and actual teachers and asking them the two questions. What I realized was that this project, the success of this project is in what we have now. It's not in some solution that we're gonna find in the future. And it was like, oh, the point of this project is not to fix these gaps. The point of this project is to humanize the gaps that we have and to bring these stories like this to life so that we see like there are actual human beings that are living these numbers right now, which is to say, we can critique the system. We can have events like Education So White and we can criticize the numbers because the gaps are huge. It is unacceptable that 90% of Washington teachers are white. That's not acceptable. And we can look at that and at the same time celebrate the students and teachers that we have right now that are doing an incredible job of connecting despite the, uh, despite the divides that are separating them. And so for me, the success is not that those gaps have closed magically in a year and a half that I've been working on this project, but that this project has reminded me like, oh, right, we need to critique the system and we also need to continue to get to know actual students and teachers who are living these numbers and celebrate the work that they're doing every day. Reflecting on my, my years of teaching, I've learned that we as teachers always pull from our own experiences um, when we're in the classroom. And I think that that's across the board. And so when, when I teach and when I talk to students, I also have to recognize that they come from a home um, with, with either their, their parents, their grandparents, and so that is really important to me. Your first assignment in, in my class is to, to let me know about your grandparents. Um, and to get my students to start thinking about who created them as a person. Um, and so that has always been frontline for me. You know, I've, I have a student who, in the past few years, we've been on a roller coaster. We, 
you know, he was my student in 11th grade. His dream was to go to Brown, his, and, and, and he just would come to me every other week, sir, this person got to Brown, and this is what they were doing. This is their resume. How do I do this, and how do I do this? And I, and I think that over the year, what got me connected to this student was not his ambition, but it was really because it was a parent meeting that his grandma showed up to that shared that she was raised, uh, she raised her, uh, his dad a block away from where I was raised. And, and that automatically told me the type of family that they were. And so, you know, it, it, it just creates the sense of, of love, it creates a sense of responsibility, because once we know things, like the conversation that we're having here, we're all responsible to do something about it. You can't just take an inf in information and then assume that it's gonna fix itself. Um, and so, for me, it's been that, you know, we have conservative sister Arizona right next to us, um, and in, in 2011, they, they shut down some uh, cultural uh, relevant teaching, but when they were having those, those uh, lessons and that part of their curriculum, they saw years after that about 40% of their kids were graduating high school, the ones that were taking those classes years before. And so, you know, I use family to, to know who my students are, but we really have to uh, push those, those, um, those strategies in classrooms, at least. That's what I've seen has been successful. I love that assignment. That's such a great, it's a great uh, relationship building. Well, I don't, um, I don't know if I have one specific example, but I think, a success story um, is that refugee kiddo uh, doesn't give up even though she or he is struggling in writing their name. Um, that child, even though he or she knows that they're mistreated and they're treated differently than that white student that they see every day, doesn't give up and shows grit and continues um, in spite of all the challenges. I think you all, we're interested in this topic and making an impact um, as a success story. I could just give one brief example. Um, when I worked for Seattle Public Schools, um, I worked in five schools in the southeast, and Rainier Beach was one of them, and Colin is right. It's a, an amazing school, amazing um, students as well. Uh, an ele elementary school called Van Assel just had a new principal, and I don't think she would mind me sharing the story, and, um, Dr. Monique Manuel, who is this uh, brilliant African-American woman. Um, and when she started, her main focus was, I want to get to know my students. I want to get to know their background. I want to get to know their challenges. I want to get to know every little aspect that I can about who they are and their family and where they come from and their story so that I can have better experience in teaching and being a principal. And she made that commitment, and I think her entire staff was able to buy in. And so every PD, we did a training on Somali culture responsiveness. Like, she signed up, was one of the first schools to sign up for that. One on implicit bias, she was one of the first schools to sign up for that. And um, February of this year, February 1st, is World Hijab Day, and Miss Manuel and her teaching staff, women, wore hijab all day, and that school has a large population of Muslim children. 
And I wonder if you can think about you as a child. I know it was a long time ago for me, um, but I'm not that old, I promise. <laughs> if you can imagine you as a six-year-old child, what could that do for you to see adults who may not look like you, but are walking in the hallways greeting you, wearing your cultural attire, in this case a hijab, how would that make you feel? I know for me, if I had that growing up, that would make me feel wanted, that would make me feel invited, that would make me feel loved, that would make me feel seen. And so, and that's what all the little Somali girls, Muslim girls felt that day. They had women, regardless of um, cultural background, wearing something that they proudly wear and also teaching other children about the importance of the hijab for young Muslim girls so that they don't get bullied. It's stories like that that I think makes this work really worth it. Um, last year at Garfield, um, as some may know, in several of the schools we lost, um, tragically lost a Seattle Public Schools mother. Her name was Charlena Lows. Um, she was shot by um, the SPD uh, in her home in Magnuson in front of her three children, um, and she was pregnant as well. And so she also had struggled with mental health issues um, for a long time, and the police department was aware of that. When I found this out, um, I was in the hallway with one of my best friends, and it hit me hard because I have a mother who's black. I'm a mother, I have a mother who has children as well. So it really resonated with me. And that same day, 20 minutes later, we walked into the classroom. Um, for my surprise to me, this teacher named Jesse Hagopian. Um, for those who don't know, Mr. Hagopian is um, the teacher, current ethnic studies teacher at Garfield High School. Um, and he was that teacher who looked like me. And he was that teacher who could resonate with um, a narrative and a tragedy such as this. And for it to happen in liberal Seattle um, was something that hit the whole school. And so um, less than 24 hours later, we planned a rally in front of our school um, with media coverage to highlight um, what, what Black Lives Matter means to us and how nobody um, is exempt from this reality, as haunting as it may be. And so um, that was a success story for me because I saw a lot of activism um, bringing up within a school that is built on the foundation of legacy at Garfield. Um, and it just reminded me why I was so proud to be a student there. Um, and then I'm gonna close with this one. Actually today, this morning, I'm my junior class president at Garfield. Um, we talked about a rally that occurred yesterday, the national rally um, for the tragic school shootings. And although the situation was horrifying, and once again, no student is exempt from this reality, um, the way that it was orchestrated was marginalizing to students of color. And majority of the students of color did not walk out because they did not feel welcome. And so we took that time this morning to talk about that, to talk about, well, let's go into the deep issue 
we'll have a police officer walk, walk into a black woman's home and shoot her in front of her children. And we're not acknowledging that, rarely nationally. And it's not excused. But when something like this happens in a suburban area to students who are predominantly white, it's nationally. Um, and so we, we, we faced that head on. And it was a group of kids, my peers, talking about this in a conversation that adults really can't. Um, and I found that empowering. So I'm really excited for my future and my peers' future at Garfield. Thank you guys so much for sharing that. And like Kristen said, we, we want to make time for questions here. Um, and, and I will also say, I, I know sometimes it's hard to sit through conversations like this and then just have so many reactions and, and things that you guys are thinking that you want to state as well. So um, feel free to come up to the microphones. If you have uh, a personal experience you want to share, please keep it very, very quick and brief. Um, but we're, we're happy to hear those. And then we're also happy to hear questions that you have for any of the panelists here. This is, this is for anybody, everybody. Um, can you offer some words of encouragement for white teachers and leaders who are just starting to study the impacts of their whiteness and they find it daunting? Oh, it's, oh, it's me, me, yeah, okay, it's my turn. <laughs> cool, excellent. Um, I'm not white, I mean, so I, I, I'm gonna I, sit this one out. I just, I just, this, this is what it's like to be tokenized, cool. Um, <laughs> So um, I, I mean, I, th I think it's like, it's owning it, like owning, owning that this is work and it's work that is never done, right? Um, one of the, like, I, I need to talk with my students frequently about the fact like, this is where I come from. Like I grew up in an area where I thought I was open to diversity and where I was really liberal. I have carried with me and continue to carry, carry with me so much uh, racism, right? And this is and this is something that I need to work against on a daily basis. Um, that that you know, racism isn't a bad feeling in your heart. It's a social force that you either block or you allow to move through you. And if you allow, if if you aren't aware of that, if you think, well, I'm a good person, so clearly, like, I'm not racist. Um, rather than acknowledging the ways that you are a conduit for this force, then, um, then you're gonna end up perpetuating it. So just recognizing that like I'm, like, I'm fallible, I say dumb stuff all the time, I mess up, right? And I just wanna say, like, we all love teachers. I was a teacher for seven years. That is the hardest job ever, ever. And so we love teachers. Of course we love our white teachers. 90% of them in Washington State are white. We love teachers. And so when we critique this, the system, it's definitely not a critique of our individual teachers who are out there doing incredible, incredible work. So. Thanks for that question. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm part of a program that's called Youth Participatory Action Research, and we're actually doing a research project on the lack of diversity in our Seattle schools, specifically Nathan Hale, because we do it at the Meadowbrook Community Life Center, which is right next to Nathan Hale, so we all go to Nathan Hale. And we're 55% white, and we're doing like, uh, right now we're still in our research part, so surveys, focus groups, stuff like interviews. I was just wondering what's like, one question that you'd ask teachers and one question that you'd ask students about the lack of diversity and how it affects them? I would start with roll calls yeah. questions. What do you have in common with your students or teachers? And then does it matter that students and teachers have things in common? It has blown my mind how those two very simple questions 
have brought a lot of people together and have brought out a lot of um, unexpected empathy. I'm going to be honest. I didn't think they were that cool until I tried to answer them. Colin's in the project. And then, so is Marcos. And then, I, and then I was like, oh, whoa, these are great questions. Yeah. Like, um, and using them as a conversation point as well is such a great way to start. Yeah. One of my favorite posts um, is, is an older lady who looks like a teacher. And she's glasses, everything. Right? She looks like a teacher. And, and you would imagine her, her answer would be very common. But she starts talking about being raised low income, being raised uh, homeless, um, and, and, and being that- In a single mom. In a single mom, and, and that is really a conversation that, that students need to hear because what they see in front of them is very different than what's behind the hood. Um, I, I think those two questions. That's Lynn Almost. she's an amazing teacher in Mossy, uh, Mossy Rock, Washington. She's incredible. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, we are also from the Youth Participatory Action Research Program, and we're focusing on the school to prison pipeline. I'm, are y'all familiar with that idea? Cool. Just, <laughs> Just making sure. Um, uh, we were doing this um, research question. We were asking the uh, educators, um, do you guys take um, training in the um, co um, culture competency training? Because that helps, um, you know, like, especially like white teachers that like help them get to know their students and stuff like that. So do you guys have like that training at Beach or in Texas? <laughs> we, we, definitely, we definitely do a lot of that at Rainier Beach. And this was sort of a part of the, the question before around like what sort of uh, conversations are happening. I think that like the, the missing piece is often, it's not the training, right? Because we can have someone come in and do, and do a training, but like how are we sustaining those conversations? And not just how are we sustaining those conversations, but how are we then taking those conversations and turning them into some meaningful action, not just uh, sort of looking systemically, but like myself as a teacher, how is this changing the way that I'm approaching students in my own classroom? Um, and, and I think that that's, that's that logical next step is like, okay, so, Great, we got a training, what do we do next? What's that next piece? Yeah, and the, the training is often the first step and um, there's professional development that happens, I think, every month in most school districts in, in the state of Washington. And then with training, there's like uh, opportunities for coaching and then most of the schools, uh, Seattle Public Schools at least, has recent equity teams that are able to sustain some of the efforts. Um, in the area where I'm from, you know, being right from the border, we have a lot of uh, areas that are called colonias. Uh, it's really affordable land that uh, people can, can go into and most of it is, is taken part by, by our first uh, generation families. Um, our area though doesn't look like that. Um, we have Audis, Mercedes dealerships, we have five Starbucks. Like we have, it looks like a regular city and a lot of it is because of the money that comes in from Mexico. Um, so one of the things that some of our districts do is if you start a job um, as a teacher, they take you on a tour to see the outside and see what you don't see on a regular highway um, because it's very different. We, I'm part of the, the, the poorest uh, county in, in the United States, so um, teachers need to see that. I wanted to say very quickly, I'm a part of um, another group called NYC, um, NWCP Youth Coalition. And we wrote a list of demands for the school district in January. And you guys should really check them out. Eight simple demands, bullet point form. Six schools got together at the center school um, weekly. And we wrote these out for people like us. 
Do you think you could post those on the Facebook event page and then maybe we could all have that as a resource? I will email them to you. Cool, I'll, we'll make it happen. <laughs> Thank you guys. Okay, I think we've got time for one more question. Good evening, great job. Um, as a mental health professional, I spend a lot of my time in King County schools. And I walk in and I also work predominantly with black children. So often educators will go, oh, you can speak black to the parents. And oftentimes, and it's not, they don't say that literally. <laughs> but in my mind, if you could read, I'm like, oh Lord. And, and often what I find is that depending on the school, which is a, Seattle City Schools, I'm in uh, Highline District, I'm in, um, uh, Renton district and they're all run ran differently and a lot of times as you're noticing the kids are moving to different locations so they're being introduced to these whole new ideas of how schools run um, trauma is a is what as you mentioned is huge and particularly for children who have parents who may come from all types of backgrounds often the teachers will make these assumptions and it's left to the child to try and figure that out. And they have enough to worry about. And I think the importance that I think one of you mentioned is making that relationship with the parents. As hard as it may seem, as hard as that parent maybe recognize that they are working hard for their children and they want them to come out with an education. So if you have that love, you should not be fearful to talk to any one of their family members and to provide that support. It doesn't always have to be the mom, doesn't always have to be the dad, but someone who supports that child. So if I can offer that, that I think is important. Thank you. And before we go, hello? And before, do we have any other mental health professionals here tonight? What about teachers? <laughs> Students? Other school support staff? Medical professionals that serve kids and teachers, yeah? Parents, any parents? I just wanna say it really does take a village not only to raise children but also to support teachers in our schools and I just feel, I'm speaking here as a former teacher but also uh, from Town Hall Seattle's perspective, I'm so grateful to be here with all of you tonight and to be here with all of you tonight and it, it just feels like we're all headed in the right direction. And I'd love give for it up for Kristen who's been working on this for so took long. Took the words out of my mouth, Town Hall. Big, big props to Kristen for putting this panel together. She's incredible. She did it last year, this year. I hope she continues We're to do it. it. And thank you again to all of our panelists for being here tonight. Thank you to all of you. Thank you.